Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. A big part of our mission at Partners Connected Health and my own personal quest is to educate, inform, and inspire the widespread adoption of Connected Health strategies. Our collaboration with HIMSS and the Personal Connected Health Alliance to host the annual Connected Health Conference is one example of a collaboration that brings together the best and the brightest to advance technology-enabled healthcare and wellness. I've written two books. I published my regular Sea Health blog to pave the way for further innovation. And now I'm delighted to launch our new Well-Connected podcast series. For nearly 25 years, I've had the opportunity to meet with, work beside, and learn from some of the most innovative, disruptive, and inspirational individuals who share the same passion to leverage connected health technologies to improve care, motivate personal wellness, and achieve great efficiencies in clinical outcomes. This podcast series is an opportunity for listeners to hear directly from these thought leaders, understand their backstory, and get a sneak peek at the future of healthcare delivery. With my first guest, John Brownstein from Boston Children's Hospital, we're going to talk about a few examples of what innovation really looks like, ideas that are not just outside the box, but are actually reimagining what the box could look like. What I tell my team all the time is that it's our job to imagine the future and then to invent it. What are all the connected out devices and applications that our clinicians will be using five to 10 years from now? What should we be doing right now to prepare for that future? Really, it's seeing around corners to anticipate what the world will be like in the next decade and decades to come. In my first book, The Internet of Healthy Things, published in 2015, many of these far-fetched predictions I made have actually become reality. In just the past three years, I also outlined several forward-looking ideas that are even more true today. To wit, we need smart technologies that not just collect and display data, but we need to apply data analytics to connect the dots. For consumers and patients, make personal health data meaningful for people in the context of their own lives. That is the way to drive engagement. We must take all the data collected via connected health technologies and make that useful for healthcare providers. We must make technology frictionless. And the hospitals must adopt to today's world where providers are rewarded for keeping patients out of the doctor's office, hospital, and emergency room. John Brownstein has been innovating in a number of areas, including using digital dust from Google searches, wearable trackers, smartphones, and other devices to predict disease and improve health outcomes. He's worked with companies like Uber, Google, Twitter, and Apple to pioneer important new applications. Moreover, John is also responsible for fostering innovation at Boston Children's Hospital and supporting the Boston startup and innovation communities. I'm delighted to welcome John as my first guest. 
Today, we have the pleasure of having a conversation with John Brownstein, PhD, who's the Chief Innovation Officer at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. He's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and I'm really excited and honored to have a chat with John about healthcare technology and all things connected health. His uh, research focuses on the development of computational methods and epidemiology for applications to public health. This area is also known as computational epidemiology or e-epidemiology. John's the founder of several global public health surveillance systems, including HealthMap. He's uh, most known for his work on global tracking of disease outbreaks, so some really interesting work there. John joined the faculty at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital in 05 where he focused on the intersection of epidemiology and computer science. He directs the Computational Epidemiology Group at Boston Children's Hospital and the Innovation and Digital Health Accelerator also at Children's Hospital. Now, this is interesting. He was appointed as full professor of pediatrics and biomedical informatics in 2015 and tenured at the age of 36. And if any of you listeners know anything about the Byzantine system at Harvard Medical School, that is an incredible accomplishment. In fact, one of the youngest professors to receive tenure in the modern history of Harvard Medical School. And again, I'll just emphasize, we get a lot of accolades uh, around, but this is, this is really very meaningful. And a uh, uh, tip of my hat to John, because I've been through the same system and took a lot longer to get there. He received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers in 2010 and the LaGrange Prize in 2016. He was honored with the 40 Under 40 Award by Boston Business Journal in 2015 and by MedTech Boston in 2016. John grew up in Montreal. He obtained his bachelor's degree in biology from McGill in 1999. He received a PhD in epidemiology in 2004 from Yale uh, for work on the emergence of Lyme disease and the West Nile virus in the United States. So that's, that's the bio of our very, very impressive guest. And welcome, John, to, to the podcast. Wow, well, thank you so much, Joe. Really appreciate that, and what an intro. Really great to be here with you. So, John, you, you've been uh, – I want to start out with something that we're both interested in, which is this concept of, of uh, digital dust, uh, the idea that uh, you can use all this data that's coming off of us effortlessly, whether it's Google searches or data from trackers, smartphones – to be meaningful to your health. Now, you've worked with tech companies ranging from Uber to Google. You've pioneered new applications. Your, uh, your idea led to the creation of Uber Health. I know you're involved in circulation as well. You've developed an Apple Care Kit app to make it easier for parents to collect medical data for their children with special needs. And you've leveraged Twitter's health-related conversations to study public health issues, including chronic disease and gun violence. So. With all of these, and, and really it's, I think, the, the essence of innovation is that you have some hits and misses. Some of your ideas have turned out to be great. Some, some companies have stumbled in this area, let's be honest. Uh, sometimes some of these things are a bit ahead of their time. It's always about market timing. Um, and, you know, we've had some notable failures like Google uh, Health, the, the first iteration of that. Uh, Microsoft's health fault didn't, didn't do too well. But it seems like the tide is changing. And so what I want to start out with is get your perspective on why you think that might be, why big companies are now really getting into this, and are, are we ready to see some real successes that will change the way healthcare is delivered? 
Yeah. No, I, I, thanks, Joe. And I, I appreciate the question. It's, it is a very exciting time. Um, when we sort of got into the space, I guess, you know, well over 10 years ago now, you know, there was very limited interest from the sort of big tech companies and thinking about healthcare or public health. And, you know, it was really attempting to drag their feet into the space more so than, you know, than what we are experiencing today. And I think there's a lack of recognition of the, the value proposition, of the impact that they could have, as well as, of course, the fear, um, the liability issues, regulatory concerns. And so, you know, we started this process, you know, really focused on some very low-hanging fruit. Um, you mentioned the digital breadcrumbs, digital exhaust. We thought, okay, well, that's probably the easiest place to begin to think about where these companies can provide value. So, you know, we turned to companies like Google and Twitter who have vast troves of data, whether it's, you know, search query data or social stream information, and try to convince them that that kind of information you know, can provide a really important, valuable view on someone's health. Um, you know, as whereas, you know, you get one particular static view of someone's, you know, disease state through an EMR, you can get very continuous data about individuals through their interactions with technology. So someone searches for a symptom on Google, that could be something that relates to outcomes that they're experiencing. You start to aggregate that up, all of a sudden now you have an incredible public health system. Similarly for Twitter, the conversations not you know are of course of wide range, but many people do disclose health status or their experience on drugs or their experience in a hospital or health behaviors they wouldn't report to a physician. All of that data combined, you know, we call, we've called the digital phenotype, and have pushed on this concept that you know these data are more valuable than what maybe, first of all, the companies themselves recognize and definitely what the health community recognized. And so we've been spending a lot of time publishing and trying to sort of beat this drum that, you know, there's this opportunity to bring these companies into the healthcare sphere. And I think now finally there's a recognition, whereas, you know, maybe the kind of work we were doing back then was considered outlandish and the idea that, you know, Google... Um, or Facebook or Uber could be involved in healthcare. Now it doesn't seem so crazy. Google's developed, for instance, incredible machine learning capabilities that have real implications across many parts uh, of healthcare, whether it's on the individual disease state prediction or whether it's around capacity or whether it's around processing large data sets. You mentioned Uber. You know, nobody would have thought Uber could have been a, a tool for public health or, or Lyft for that matter, when we convinced them to do flu shots on demand, that opened their eyes like, wow, our logistics network is actually potentially an on-demand healthcare network that uh, we can leverage to move patients, bring patients to, uh, to hospitals, get healthcare out to people, get products out to people. And, you know, it's just a rethink of, of what the existing capacity already is. The same goes for Amazon, of course. They are, you know, incredible on the logistics as well as, you know, many other new technologies like voice. Again, lots of recognition now that there are opportunities for health. And now they're starting to build healthcare teams across the board that are devoted towards sort of seeing their technologies, their expertise, their know-how embed into software that we're hoping is going to have real impact on health outcomes, reducing costs. I mean, that's yet to be seen, of course, but I think now there's this there's this 
maybe feeling that it that it's okay for them to, to get involved. And once we see, start seeing one company enter into the mix, you're sort of seeing a domino effects effect occur. And so we're you know it's a really exciting time to be at this space of, of technology and healthcare. I couldn't agree more. I'm I'm going to quote you a di- digital phenotype. And, and I will, I'll, I'll attribute it to you uh, when I do so. I, I like that very much. It reminds me a, a little bit of uh, how I, I used to grouse that the uh, genetics people hijacked the term personalized medicine. Uh, and uh, what you're talking about is really just a, a, a way of bringing the phenotype into that. So I, I think it's got enormous potential. Uh, as you were talking, it, it occurred to me in in the context you mentioned with with all of the again all of this data coming out um, and the chilling effect I think but I want to get your perspective the the chilling effect of the uh, Cambridge Analytica debacle um, the, the 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 fact that people are already a bit afraid of their privacy and as we get more and more into health data how is that going to play out? Are we going to see like the, I think the data privacy regulations in Europe could stifle what you just described with respect to improving healthcare. How, how's that all going to play out? Do you have a, a crystal ball on that one? No, you know, I think, I, th- I think it is worrisome to them for sure. Uh, my personal feeling is that much of this is going to blow off, um, especially with generational changes in people viewing this technology. I think that, of course, there's been troves of people that have, you know, deleted their social networking account. But at the same time, you know, uh, Facebook owns a company called Instagram, (laughs) which has never been more popular. Uh, WhatsApp is, you know, still one of the the most popular apps online. So you're seeing maybe some shifting occur. But I think ultimately people recognize that you know they're giving something up by using these technologies. I think that um, you know if you're using this product for free, I think there's a more recognition that you're the actual product itself. And unfortunately, I mean, yeah, this has been the reality. And and interestingly enough, at Cambridge Analytica, you know, that was years ago. And in fact, we were, you know, using some of that open access information for work with the FDA. For instance, we use Facebook posts, um, de-identified, of course, to look for adverse events around products, to look for signals and provide that back to FDA to, to do follow-on investigations of where we might see the next Viox, as an example. These data are actually incredibly valuable from a public health standpoint. Um, but I, I think ultimately, you know, you know, people are going to change their behaviors. They may move off of one network because they don't feel secure on it, but then there are others that will gain popularity. And as researchers, we're having to be quite nimble in how we think about these data and how we access and how we frankly partner with these companies um, because you know that is part of the challenge on the other side is like, how do you build meaningful partnerships? How do you get the most value out of some of these tools? Now, I'll just say, I would love to see us move from this idea that we are sort of mining someone's feed without them knowing, uh, which is something that, of course, has happened to a much more participatory view of the world. So, you know, there's always an opportunity to think about opt-in. And I know that's more challenging because you get a much smaller sample size. But if you start to think about individuals, not as sort of just an individual data feed, but as an active participant in, try, in, in health research and in public health, you can get some really amazing gains because, you know, if 
you sort of have an opt-in, say on a Facebook, you can start to, to build in surveys, you can have data donation, you can have all sorts of new features that engage people into something that is um, much more, part, you know, I say putting the public back in public health, like a, a much more sort of stakeholder based tool where, you know, you're actually getting people to, to be part of the sort of healthcare research apparatus. And then ultimately that, that provides potentially much better data, but then also represents a feedback mechanism to those people. So with new results, you can return them with new, new insights, people can be part of it. So it educates people at the same time as providing a better data set. So that's sort of my hope for how things will evolve and the application of these data, at least on the healthcare yeah, side. No, I, I like that because what you're really saying is that we use any of these tools where we give up tremendous amounts of personal data, we use them because we get something really valuable in return. And maybe the secret in getting this done in healthcare is to is to find out what that is for people as opposed to, uh, you know, I like to say that uh, when you go to your doctor and, and he or she scolds you that if you don't lose 10 pounds, you're going to have a heart attack in 10 years. That's not very effective. But if we can say, well, you know, if you lose a few pounds, you look better at your kid's wedding. Uh, maybe maybe that's we have to move in that direction. Uh, you know, you. I, I want to return to the to the big companies uh, for a minute, John. One more question, which which really has to do because obviously you've taught them a lot, uh, and that that's why there's so many eager to involve you in their in their thinking about health. But I think let's turn it around and 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 think about what we as healthcare providers can learn from them and not just from the data as, as you described earlier that they're providing us, but really from how they go about solving problems and innovating. Do you have some thoughts on that? So, I mean, absolutely. There's, um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from some of the companies um, that I've worked with, whether it's companies like Google or Uber. I mean, they have real capacity to, to, to take on an idea and, and fail fast. Honestly, I mean, I know it's such a simple concept um but we we struggle with that in healthcare right we have we <laughs> we especially in 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 our existing ecosystem the harvard medical school you know people have an idea they hold dearly to that idea they're not looking to part with it um, and move off of it you know and i think that is a real struggle and even a struggle that we have in our own innovation program we see an opportunity we've put resources behind it we are not going to let it just die. And that's exactly sometimes the best the best thing to do uh, for an idea. You learn a lot from your failures. And I know that seems trite and a lot of people say it, but it, it's in execution, it's much more challenging. And so in working with, say, Uber, when they implemented the Uber Health effort, I mean, there were many different ideas, many different ways to, to have, have gotten flu shots out done. And, and it was just amazing to see the amount of iteration, the amount of, of collaboration, but also just the ability to say, okay, this was not the direction to go in and, and, just, and just stop. And, um, you know, we've seen this across the board. You know, there are many different little, you know, sprinklings of ideas that occur, but the best ones survive and they're willing to, to do a major triage at the end of the day. In our own health system often, and this was you know um, something that we've now really tried to prevent, it's this sort of ecosystem of pilots that are sort of getting limited support and just limping along for years. Um, and that's a real struggle. It means that the stakeholders are upset, the people providing the resources are upset, it's not good for the patients. I mean, 
it's something that we see over and over again. And so, I mean, that's probably the most valuable lesson that I've learned, you know, is just really, you know, create a massive uh, a funnel, right? Like have, you know, source ideas, get, make it really okay for lots of people to, to, to bring ideas to the table and try to, to, to develop it a little further. But when it times, comes time to it, just take the few best ones and execute them well. Yeah, no, and, and I, I do think we really struggle with that. We, we're trying to do a better job of course correcting and, and uh, pivoting and so forth. But there's something about, uh, I think the speed of, of uh, basic and clinical research is slow. There's something about healthcare that makes it harder to do that. And, and, and hopefully we'll learn at some point uh, how to do it better because I think we still struggle, struggle with that. Uh, you know, speaking of entrepreneurial spirit and, and your role as chief innovation officer at, at Children's, I wanted to f- sort of talk a little bit with you about that uh, journey. Um, and t- t- tell me a little bit about how much time you spend as the chief innovation officer, what exactly that means at Children's, uh, and how you keep it fresh. How do you keep uh, inspiring yeah. people at the hospital to, uh, to stay on the cutting edge? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a it's a great uh, question. So you know, my background is much more you know obviously on the on the research side, and I guess that's a less traditional route for a chief innovation officer. I I still run my research group. That group itself um, spun off a company several years ago, taking some of the assets uh, from the technologies that we developed, and 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 where we struggled as a research group to to scale. And uh, the technology, um, a startup could could do things that you couldn't do with a research group, and so we took, you know, that that was a startup that I helped found, and that grew and was acquired, and recognized that there was a path for researchers and clinicians who had good ideas, who wanted to maintain their day jobs, but saw a path for some of their ideas to grow outside the walls of the hospital. Um, but that path wasn't really well documented. It didn't have sort of clear parameters. You know, there's lots of considerations on the legal front, on the just understanding licensing, on conflicts of interest, of course. And so at that time, there was this opportunity to sort of try to take all that learning that I had as sort of a researcher, entrepreneur, and, and code that into a playbook that could help the rest of the institution. Because what was happening was people were getting increasingly frustrated with the process of how to sort of take innovations out uh, because it was so complex. And so how do we, and, and if they were frustrated, they would either stop and we'd lose the opportunities to really scale or they would leave. And so, you know, how do you start to build a process where it creates an environment that is very welcoming to new technologies and the idea that you can start to, to, to bring things out of the hospital and even potentially into a startup that you help found. And so we, we built a playbook. I, I took on the role of chief innovation officer to help sort of build that playbook, help build an accelerator that was really uh, permissive to this idea that you could you could do both things. You could be a clinician and entrepreneur, a researcher and an entrepreneur. And, and, but in order to do that, we had to do things like, you know, put real resources to work to the best ideas, give real guidance to people and, and, and help people along the process. And as I mentioned before, kill ideas as, as needed. But with the best ideas, really start to scale them out to the world. And now we have a portfolio of about 14 different companies that we've now spun off that have come from within our organization. And now actually a lot of startups that are now coming into the accelerator, this wasn't meant initially as 
um, an outside accelerator, but now, you know, there are companies that have started from not within the hospital that are being part of this group. And, you know, I, I think your question of how to keep it fresh is, is a great is a great question. I worry about that definitely a lot. Um, you know, it's hard to be a chief innovation officer for, you know, at, for 30 years, you know, that becomes much more of an administrative job or a bureaucrat. You, you, you don't want to you, you can't sort of be in a role like that and, and not be innovating. I luckily have a research group where I'm, I'm still spending a lot of time, you know, building new IP. But I also um, we have a whole R&D capacity of, uh, of, the, of the group where we're experimenting in things in voice first technologies and immersive technologies, a range of different tools that we think are going to play impact. In healthcare, and, and also I, I founded a company called Circulation, which is doing healthcare logistics um, with Lyft and Uber, and and essentially, um, you know, staying connected to the startup scene that way as well. So wearing a few different hats, but actually the bulk of my time is chief innovation officer, and and you know, and and it's really I couldn't be luckier to have that kind of role here. It's uh, inspirational. I, I just say for for the listeners, it's inspirational to hear that story and to and to get the playbook of how you're doing it. I think I remember meeting with uh, some senior folks at the Mass Competitive Partnership a couple of years ago and reflecting that because the 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 question that people always ask is why do we lose so many talented people to to Silicon Valley and and I think one of the reasons is we don't have in academia an environment that that puts what you just described of 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 innovating in uh, at the same level as getting an NIH grant or something like that and you've really started to do that and it's very clear right that when when I when I attend events around Boston and see what you're up to and what the folks at Children's are up to it's clear that you've done that and I uh, we I applaud you for that we all need to uh pay more attention to doing that because at the end of the day, if your service chief uh, showers you with with attention and resources, if you get an R01 NIH grant, but frowns upon you forming a startup, that's going to be a problem for us. So let's turn, John, to your research. Your, your research focuses on public health uh, surveillance systems, and, and really your work has led to the development of several novel disease surveillance systems. We mentioned healthmap.org before. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and and uh, this concept of digital epidemiology, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, the health map journey and, and uh, what digital epidemiology is, and then where do you see it going? What's your, uh, what's your next 10 years look like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's been quite a ride, and in some ways we've been lucky in that we've rided the wave of... Uh, of uh, of consumer technology over over the years, and and you know the initial starting point actually of HealthMap came from a frustration around data sharing. Frankly, um, I spent my PhD collecting data in the field. Um, I did work on Lyme disease and West Nile virus. I actually got Lyme disease trying to collect ticks in the the woods of Connecticut, and realized like, yeah, maybe I'm not the best field scientist in the world. But more importantly, I, you know, for my work, I, I tried asking CDC and local public health for data to support the work that I was doing, and that was really challenging. Nobody was willing to share even de-identified aggregate data uh, because you know, of a variety of reasons, often because of publication rights. Um, I came to Boston, which were, where I could get access to a, a much bigger trove of information through the EMR 
but again, that data was highly constrained in terms of geography. Um, and if you're interested in, in global public health, there really was just limited amounts of data, as well as a lack of ability on a part of organizations to, to part with any of that limited information. So I thought to myself, well, there was, you know, incredible data on the web. You know, I look every day, I get a news report about some disease outbreak, but nobody's really organizing that content and, and pulling it together in a structured way. I, so I started working with my colleague, Clark Freifeld, who was a uh, software engineer, and we realized, well, you know, this is when Google Maps just began and people were creating these Google mashups. And we're like, well, well nobody's ever put disease outbreaks on a map. And so we started creating a, um, a tool that was essentially scraping the web, looking for disease events online, tagging them, um, by disease, by location, and started and, and mapped that. And we just put it out there. That was like a side weekend project. And all of a sudden it got picked up by Wired and, and got the attention of Google. And we're like, oh, wait, maybe maybe we're onto something here. We actually, my first research grant actually was from Google, who was, they were very interested in this space. It was using, you know, there, you know, we were using Google News, Google Maps, uh, Google Translate, you know, a lot of different uh, of Google products to create a public health tool. Um, and so we built it up and it, it got a lot of, you know, you know, got a lot of steam and, and really started being used by organizations like CDC and WHO for their essentially day to day situational awareness efforts. Um, and so then it's become this sort of, you know, system that is now used and, and, and evolved over time, um, but also became underlying a data set that can be used for research. So we been able to publish it. We can share actively that data with researchers around the globe who are using that for their, their research purposes. So it sort of took a different stance around the kind of data that I was struggling to obtain. And that sort of led to this whole sort of new field of digital disease detection, the idea that all this information online could be harnessed for new insights of disease. And, and as technology changed over time, the tools that we could use have changed. So when you know news and blogs started, then all of a sudden you had data from Twitter, which became incredibly valuable for a variety of things, like for instance, foodborne disease, where Twitter can be a really accurate tool. Or we started using Yelp data for tracking violations in restaurants, or even open table cancellations as a way to understand social disruption. Um, and we've been able to show time after time that all of these, or say Wikipedia views for a particular disease page, that is an indicator of disease in a population. So over and over, we've shown that all these various um, uh, companies or web assets that exist out there have this value for public health. And, and it's really brought the field forward. I think what's ultimately happened is that there's also technologies have changed on the individual side. And I think this is where the merger of connected health and public health is really interesting. There are all these new um, tools and devices for patients in their self-assessment at home. So you have a connected thermometer. That is a tool that can help triage and help give insights to a patient. But that underlying data is, is potentially valuable for public health. Or, you know, now we've seen the emergence of chatbot tools um, that are helping uh, patients uh, decide, you know, what to do next. Should they go to urgent care, to the ED, or, or, or self-treat? Self Again, that underlying data becomes incredibly valuable as well. And, and, and so it's really exciting to see the evolution of these technologies and now how they're both supporting the individual and the public. 
I think that the future really becomes very interesting as diagnostic devices emerge, low-cost connected tools that can then support large parts of the population that can ultimately decide exactly what infection you have and, and how that can be treated and, 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 all, and, and essentially you know, stream that data to public health agencies as well. I think, of course, challenges abound in this work. And you know, Google launched a product called Google Flu Trends. That was exciting in, in a sense because it was Google putting, putting efforts into public health and, and was really exciting. But at the same time, it um, had challenges as well. Um, you need to be very careful on the methodologies you use, and you have to understand that that ways in which people use these technologies changes over time, so your methods have to change. And so it, there are some drawbacks, but ultimately, you know, there's a whole new field, as you mentioned, e-epidemiology, I mean, has really grown in the, in the time since, we, you know, we started the health map. So there are, you know, legions of, uh, of students and postdocs and faculty now in this space, and not just for infectious disease, you know, broadly, chronic disease, health behaviors, um, you know, lots and lots of different opportunity. Well, it's great to, to, to hear how a weekend project, uh, to use your phrase, ended up being so powerful and so contributory because I, I, I dare say what you just described now is, uh, is sort of table conversation for people in healthcare that, oh, of course we can track flu by looking at Google or what have you. And that really, you must be very, very proud of that uh, innovation. Uh, John, I want to give you some time to. Uh, this is what I call the free bingo space part of the conversation. What, what, what do you want to talk about? What that I haven't asked you? Is there some uh, other issue that's on your mind that you think we should uh, chat about for a few minutes? There, I, we, you and I could chat about a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I guess you know the thing that we're we're really trying to push on and likely to announce soon as part of the Connected Health Conference is is a, is a whole stream around voice first technologies. And that's an area that we're spending a lot of time in. I think our feeling is that the next wave of the internet is really going to be driven by voice tools. So, you know, like Siri, you know, or like the smart speakers in your home, the there are opportunities around healthcare in all sorts of different facets. We're very excited because, of course, you have a smart speaker in home that becomes a connected device, a conversational assistant that can help with a range of different health questions. Or um, you know access to your to, to info that you need for yourself or your family, but then all of a sudden, that device also becomes an incredible tool in in aiding the conversation between a physician and a patient. That means that you know it can be a dictation tool, but also a tool to bring up information in EMR that limits the 30 clicks that it takes to pull up data, or becomes an incredible tool in a, in a sterile environment where you need to pull up radiology imagery or pull up labs. Um, we think that there, that healthcare, whereas healthcare has lagged a lot of industries um, in other technologies, we've seen this, of course, in you know how healthcare has lagged the financial space. I actually think voice technology is a place where healthcare can actually be a leader to other industries. So um, we're pretty excited and have actually had deployments across Boston Children's now, trying to figure out how to to optimize these tools for these interesting you know new settings. And so I think you know that's a one at least one area where we're, we're quite excited. Well, we're, we're excited about having you at the Connected Health Conference to talk about that. Maybe uh, if we get time, we should show the little clip from Saturday Night Live, which I think is so adorable with the, uh, it's the best. Uh, seniors yeah, yeah, trying to fiddle with uh, smart speakers and, and a lot of, I think, insights there into how we have to design these things. 
Absolutely. John, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today and, and uh, really thank you for your time. I know uh, anyone listening is going to get an enormous amount of insight from uh, what you have to say, and I look forward to uh, continuing to work with you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Each episode, we take a moment to answer one question from our followers in a segment my team likes to refer to as Ask Joe. Here's a question I get asked a lot. Since you wrote The Internet of Healthy Things, so much has changed. So many advancements have been made. Where do you see the future heading in this area? And that is a great question. I can only say that what we're seeing now is exciting that we have any manner of sensors in our environment. When we wrote the book, we hadn't yet seen the Nest thermostat. We hadn't yet seen the Amazon Echo. And you can see these Internet of Things applications coming up all over the place. Now, not as many yet in health, so you can envision a future if you think about how we use a technology like the Amazon Echo or how we use technology like the Nest to regulate our thermostat, think about regulating your health. And that's when things like the Fitbit and the, the weight scales that are connected, et cetera, come in. So the future, simply put, is all of those data coming in, being analyzed by software, and creating a unique individual digital footprint or fingerprint of each one of us that can be used as a tool to create automated inspirational messages that will keep us headed towards the healthiest choices to extend our lifespan and our health span uh, for many, many years ahead. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like answered on a future episode, send it to us via social media with a hashtag AskJoe and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming podcast. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Cavita. A special thanks for me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.